Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. There we go. It's only Christmas. It's all right. Let's wake up a little bit. No. So glad that you guys are here this morning, especially you could be home opening presents right now. You could be sitting around, sleeping in. You could be doing a hundred things and get away with it, and it would be perfectly fine because we would say, oh, it's Christmas, but you guys came to be here, and I appreciate that. Uh, actually, we, we took a little bit of flack. I'm going to be honest with you. Some people were looking at us like, really? You're going to have service on Christmas? <laughs> it's the boss's birthday, you know? <laughs> Feel like you should meet then. And then they're like, you're going to do two services on Christmas? He went to the cross for us. I feel like two little birthday celebrations is a little bit underworthy of what he deserves. And so, no, glad that you guys are here. We are going to continue. If you were here last night, we read the Christmas story. We had uh, an old man, grandpa, and he said, I could say that, so don't be offended. Had all the kids come up and we read the Christmas story. And that's a tradition that actually comes from my wife's family. And so it's kind of very near and dear to us that Grandma and Grandpa Ferbert, that's Ashley's maiden name, so you can make fun of her for that. They would, they would sit by the tree, and they'd get all the grandkids, and all of us would be sitting around, and the great-grandkids, actually. And we'd all sit around, and they'd read the Christmas story, and then we would dig into the presents. And so we love that we can bring kind of a family tradition uh, to our church service there on Christmas Eve. And we're going to continue that story of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles... You know, we always get to the Christmas story, and he's born, and then there's the wise men and the angels, and we read all that, and we kind of walk away, but there's still a little bit more to the story. There's still a little bit more that gives some significance. So if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, so this is Jesus. He's just about a couple days past a week old. And according to the Old Testament law, there were some things that mom and dad had to do any time that a baby was born. And so we're kind of picking up the story there. And so verse 22, and so when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. couple geek outs. Anytime that you see up to Jerusalem, they're not talking directionally. Scripture is specific, even geographically, meaning Jerusalem is a high point of elevation. So no matter where you lived around Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem. And that's why in the Psalms, there's a few Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent, that when you were on your pilgrimage journeys to Jerusalem for different festivals that you had to go to Jerusalem for, you sang these Psalms of Ascent, because no matter where you came from, you were always walking up to Jerusalem. And the other little geek out that you see here is when the time had come for their purification, even though Jesus was absolutely sinless, even as a young baby, he's identified with sinners. And so there's so much about the person of Jesus that we see even as a young child in that, that he identified with sinners. So his parents were good parents. They did everything according to the law. So verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now the song makes sense, two turtle doves. 
That's true. That's where that comes from. (laughs) The partridge in the pear tree is a reference to Jesus. And you look at that, and he's quoting, Luke is, he's writing, and he's quoting from Leviticus 12, but he doesn't quote the whole verse. See, the whole verse says that you're actually supposed to take a lamb for this purification. But if you couldn't afford it, then you take two turtle doves. That not only identifies with sinners, he identifies with the poor. That he did come from low means. And so this is also another indication, because think, what did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, if his parents had all of that, which would have been very valuable, they would have bought a lamb. But the wise men haven't came yet, because he was about two when they showed up. They weren't there right when Mary popped him out. He was a child at that point. And so here Jesus, identifying with sinners, identifying with the poor, and verse 25, so they're walking into the temple to do this purification thing, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Couple geek outs here, couple geek outs. So the consolation of Israel. Another word we could use is comfort. And we know the Holy Spirit, that is a name that we have for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And so the kind of the geek out is if you remember when Jesus was about to leave and he's in his last week, he's talking with his disciples and he tells them that another helper will come. Like it is good that I go away so that another helper will come. Well, that term helper in the original Greek, it's the same here as the consolation of Israel. Because every time I would read that and be like, another helper. Well, who was the first helper? Well, of course, Jesus was. But where was he ever referenced as that comfort? It was at his birth. Nowhere else in his ministry would you find that. It's at his birth that he is called the consolation of Israel, the comfort. And so you have the Holy Spirit, the comforter telling Simeon that Jesus is the comforter, and then you're going to have the first comforter telling his disciples that another one will come. And who's that? Oh, the Holy Spirit who told the... It's it's a nice little circle that almost like somebody, God, has this whole thing planned out, even from the very beginning. And it had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, I mean, imagine being Simeon. You're living, you're getting kind of old, you know, like everything's hurting and you can't quite get out of bed easy. And then the Holy Spirit, who does not permanently indwell believers at this time, because this is still Old Testament, even though, yes, we're reading in Luke, this is the Old Testament time. The Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers. And the Holy Spirit enters you and says, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. They've been waiting for thousands of years. There hasn't even been a prophet for 400 years. The time in between the the end of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus, 400 years, that there wasn't even a prophet in Israel. And all of a sudden you hear, oh yeah, hey, before you uh, become a little dirt food for the trees and stuff, you're going to see the Messiah. Like that is huge. 
And when he came into the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, again, Jesus absolutely fulfilled the law. He did not abolish the law. Simeon, he took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So even fast forwarding to the early church, it wasn't until you can get to like Acts 16 before they would even let Gentiles to be a part of the church. But if we'd go back to the announcement of Jesus and even when he's just not even two weeks old, he was to be a light to the Gentiles who did not know God and were not a part of his chosen people, Israel. So he's a light to the Gentiles and he is a glory for the people of Israel, that this is God manifesting the Messiah that they've been waiting on. He was manifesting, he was that glory for Israel. And I love verse 33, as a dad looking at my own kids and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Some of you guys compliment me on my kids, and I appreciate that. We have a standing rule in our house that if we're out to eat and somebody compliments the behavior of our kids, we have to buy them desserts, right? And now they can't go fishing for it. You know, they can't like, hey, aren't we being really good, waitress? No, no, no. And then when it happens, though, somebody will come up and say, hey, I just want to say, your kids are just so well-behaved. And then all four of those little ankle biters, even now, will turn and look at me with a smile. (laughs) And I marvel at what is said about them. It's like, you don't know them that well, do you there, waitress? You really don't know them that well, people sitting next to us. Like, give give it 10 minutes when we're in the van, and then you'll really hear. So I marvel at what is said. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What a word that Mary heard about her child. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, when she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until 84. So we have this 84-year-old widow, and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up to the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Even this in the song that we sang, talking about Jesus, is that redemption of Jerusalem. And so these are kind of some little bit of no-namers in the Christmas story. You usually don't hear about Simeon and Anna and, and the role that they played, but speaking through the Holy Spirit, being a prophet, talking about Jesus, giving prophecy of who he is and what he will do in this earth for his ministry in this world, that even from the very beginning, that that was the plan for Jesus's life, that he would be this light, he would be this glory, that he would manifest 
who God is because he is God. And the, and the whole plan of the cross, not something that just happened to him. Critical scholars love to say that. Oh, they, they, sat, they crucified him because he overturned tables in the temple. And well, yeah, that ticked people off. And if either one of us would have done that, we probably would have got the same punishment. But there was more to it. That God was doing a bigger and greater work because he wanted to redeem humanity that Jesus was that, and that the other word you could use instead of redemption is he wanted to ransom us, that we had built up a debt against God. And he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pay that. And so the whole purpose of Jesus's life is to be that comfort of redemption. And I love that. So when you're hearing both Simeon and Anna talk about him, you know, you have Simeon talking about this is the comforter that is coming. And even at that, we all, we all can already kind of think of it's like, oh, you don't even know. Because the comforter that you're waiting on is going to say, oh, yeah, hey, wait. It's going to be good that I go away because one even greater. Not only is God with us, the second comforter is going to come and we're going to have God in us. Like Simeon's mind probably would have just gone that the prophecy that he's given about Jesus, no, there's even still more to the story that you don't even know, and God is still working that even through our own lives, that the same promise given to Simeon is given to us. And so I love the legacy of their lives, that they never lose hope, even in their older age. And I'm not looking at anybody specific, but we just look in the mirror every day, and it's like, it's getting worse, Right? I look, at my, I look in the mirror, then I look at my wife, and I apologize. So this is the best it's getting. I'm sorry. You drew the short straw. Somebody had to marry me. It's a cross you bear. But they never lost hope because God fulfills his promise. And if you remember last week, we walked through and we talked about all the different prophecies that were just about the birth of Jesus. And we talked about the mathematical improbability that any one man could have done that. And that was a crazy improbability. But Jesus fulfills over 300 different prophecies. Another way you could say it is Jesus fulfills 300 promises that God gives for us. And he does that so that we can perfectly and exactly identify that's the Messiah. That we don't have to walk around and wonder, is that really are you really the Lord's? I mean, even John the Baptist asked that question. Are you really the one or should we be waiting for another? That even John the Baptist missed it a little bit. That for us, though, having the fullness of God's word, we can know for sure and exactly that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And so I love that legacy of their lives and I love the example that they leave for us even this morning. Looking at Simeon and Anna, going to combine both of them and their legacies to encourage us. What do we do when we're holding fast to the promise? We hold fast to the word. You hear Simeon say, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That if the Holy Spirit was going to speak to him, that was a promise that he could hold on to. And imagine waking up every morning, getting a little more wrinkly, maybe a little more bald which I can't get more bald, I'm just am bald, right? It just happens. It's like getting a little bit older, things are hurting a little bit more. But Lord, I know your word. You said I would see, I would see the Messiah before I died. 
And I wonder if he had a concept. Is he going to see him as an adult male that's going to be leading? Like, was he going to see Jesus rolling into Jerusalem? But no, he was a baby, so that probably threw him a little bit. Not what he was expecting, but obviously we know that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so when he saw that baby and the stirring of the Holy Spirit hit him, he wasn't even expecting that this baby coming in, like, that's, that's him. But he held fast to the word. And I think that's an encouragement for us this morning, that there are times in life where it gets hard. It gets painful. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of yuck and muck that we have to walk through in this life. The earth is broken. We're broken. Everybody around us is broken. There, there's a whole world just living completely opposite of the word of God, and we have to live in it. Even though we know our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven, but we're still visitors passing through. And how do we make it through this? We have to hold fast to the word. Because where else are we given the promises of God? And so to know the promises, we need the word and to hold fast to the word of God. And there's times that I can feel, right? So let's take one promise. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. There's times I can feel alone. I can feel loneliness. I can feel that God has left me and forsaken me. I can have that feeling, but again, our feeling doesn't drive our faith. The facts do. I hold fast to the word. So I know it is a redemptive impossibility because Jesus redeemed me for me to be alone. Now, there's times I might feel that, just like David, just like some of the disciples at times. I can feel that. that can, that's a real thing, but that's also an opportunity to hold fast to the word of God. So hold fast to the promises. That's why it's so important to be in the word, not to get the check mark, okay, I read my Bible today. No, 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 I wanna know the promises of God. I wanna know what I can hold fast to. I wanna know what my foundation in life is. And it's through the word. The example number two that we have is hold fast in prayer. We have this 84-year-old widow and she's coming into the temple night and day, fasting and praying, fasting and praying. I think of my grandmother. I think she made it to 83. And the prayers of a grandmother, pretty powerful. Why? Because she probably fasted and prayed a whole lot when I was wandering in my sin, living apart from Jesus. And she probably called up all the other 84-year-old prophetess, you know, that were widows that didn't have anything else to do and be like, all right, we got a mission. We got to pray for Nick. But he's not walking with the Lord. Prayer is powerful. I'm standing here right now as an example of answered prayer. My grandma probably never knew what it meant when she was saying, Lord, grab a hold of his heart again. I never thought I'd be in ministry. She was just trying to keep me out of prison. And I love her for that. But hold fast to prayer. Again, there's going to be times that you're going to feel like your prayers don't even get past the ceiling. I get that. But the truth, the promise of God's word is he hears our prayers. He knows our thoughts even before we even pray them. Well, why do we do that? Because he just loves talking with us. He just loves hearing from his children. And so pray throughout your day. Find times that you have dedicated times of prayer, but just pray throughout the day. Kind of like my wife as she's cleaning the house. She just talks. I'm like, are you talking to me? I don't know. I'm just talking out loud. 
okay, because I don't want to get in trouble for not listening, right? <laughs> so I, I need to know. Like, you need to say, Nick, I'm talking to you right now. Like, she just talks throughout her day, and I love that. And the Lord's saying, talk to me throughout the day. It's, I, I, when my kids were little, and sometimes they still do it now, they'll, they just want to tell me about every little thing. Nothing life-changing whatsoever. They just want to tell Dad. And I love that, that they still want to run and come and talk to me. And so we need to still run to our Father in prayer. And then in worship, hold fast to worship. There is something about taking the truth of God's word and we put melody to it. Because sometimes my heart can grow really cold, really bitter. You can get really numb. But you know how powerful music is. That just hearing a melody, just to hear that song can really restore our soul. I think that was the reason that Saul wanted David to play the harp because he was in so much turmoil and music just calmed his spirit. So you take that power of music and then you combine it with the truth and the promises of God's word. Play some worship music at work. If you get in trouble, turn it up, right? Amen. <laughs> Play some worship music at home while you're doing your normal things. Hear the truth of the word of God being sung, not just spoken over you, but sung over you. There's so many times I can remember, like, this is sad, I can remember, remember movie quotes and song lyrics. But then when you ask me to quote a verse, it's like, well, and quote the whole movie Dumb and Dumber, sadly. <laughs> sadly, I can quote that movie. But I open up God's word, and it's like, if you just put Jim Carrey in the main character here, I'd probably remember it better. That's why we need worship music playing. And so I encourage you, put worship music on. Let, hold fast to that. Let the word of God be sung over you. There's something about that that softens and melts our hearts. And then again, looking at Anna here, she held fast to thankfulness. You can't be critical and thankful at the same time. And oh, how easy it is for us to be critical. Oh, the cinnamon rolls were a little burnt, or they weren't done enough. The coffee was too hot. The coffee was too cold. Uh, and we can get so critical about things so quick. And that's our flesh just wanting to take over. No, the cinnamon rolls and the coffee were great. Just teasing over there. Amen. There we go. But we, for me, this is just me now. Maybe this is a way of description, not prescription. I can get real critical real fast. There's a reason we need to hold fast to thankfulness because it protects our critical spirit to say, you know what, it's not about that. That we're going to thank the Lord for what he has provided for us. We're going to thank the Lord for the promises that we have. And even if we haven't seen the fulfillment and the full part of that, we're going to be thanking the Lord because he's still writing our story. Thank the Lord that he's not done because if he's done with our story, then we're out of here. We're going home. But if we have a pulse... He's still writing our story. He's still working in and through us. And isn't that what we all want as followers of Jesus, that more of the Lord to continue to work in and through us? We should be thankful in that. And then the last one, Anna, she said, and, she, and it says, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I fully believe that every lost person is waiting to hear about Jesus. They just don't know that that's what they're waiting on. One commentator put it this way. He said, uh, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel wants Jesus to answer the door. And I thought that is powerful. 
Every alcoholic wants to find Jesus at the bottom of the bottle. They just didn't know that's what they're looking for. That they're going after everything else in the world to try to fulfill that God-sized hole in their heart. And as they're reaching at everything else but Jesus, it's only causing more brokenness in their life. So not only do they have just their sin nature and the sin in their life and that brokenness, that they're causing more of that. The very thing that they're trying to numb their heart from, they're causing more of it because they're not running to Jesus. Because I mean, think of our lives. How many times is there something like, I never knew I needed that, right? Like my son is very techie, very, very techie. Anything that plugs in, he can rewire it and get, you know, nuclear missile codes from the government, right? Can't even put a radio in his room. I don't trust him. And he'll do something to my phone or any of my electronic devices. He'll be like, oh, here, this will be so much easier for you. And he just kind of smiles and calls me a boomer. It's like, I'm a millennial. Get it right, buddy. I didn't even know I needed that. I didn't even know this could do that. It's made my life so much better because of it. Right now, it ticks him off because my watch every once in a while will talk to me, and it's done it on a Sunday, and he's like, why don't you just fix that? I didn't know I needed it. Didn't know it could do that. And to take that simple concept but put it on an eternal perspective. Some people, and they're lost in their brokenness, and they're hurt in their pain. I didn't even know I needed Jesus. Well, he's the comfort. He's the ransom. He's the redemption. He's the very thing that will heal your heart compared to everything else that's causing more brokenness to your heart. Like what we said last night, if you were here, that the angels, when they approached the shepherds, I think it's verse 10, yeah, there it is. For I bring you good news of great joy, that when we preach Jesus, when we share our love of Jesus with other people, it should bring great joy, not guilt, not shame, not condemnation, it should bring great joy in people's life. If it doesn't, I challenge if we're really preaching Jesus. Because if the angel said, this is good news of great joy for all people, then the church should bring good news, which is where we get the term evangelism, of great joy for all people. And so we should be in sharing all who are waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. Like, if any time the church should lead in what this season is about, I think this is the time. Now, obviously, we preach Jesus be ready in season or out of season or in the Christmas season. But this should be our time to lead. Like, okay, you have different people, characters, you know, the elf on the shelf and the Santa and the reindeer and the snowman. You have all of that. Okay, that's great. That's fun. Let me tell you about the comfort of redemption of who Jesus is. So we have these promises. And that word promise, just the assurance that one will do a particular thing or a particular thing will come to happen. And so we are holding fast to the promises that God, we have an assurance that he is going to do this particular thing. And now Anna and Simeon, they hold fast to the promise that God will do this. We, on the other side, hold fast to the promise that God has. See, they were looking forward to the comfort of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, and we get to look back on it. We get the fullness of the word of God. 
We get an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Even the promises that we can hold to, they, they would have no context for. That they would even, you know, they had the Old Testament law, the Hebrew Bible, but there's going to be a, there's going to be another covenant, another testament. Oh, yeah. And you're going to have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not just coming and telling you a couple promises and then stirring your heart when you see, like, you're going to always have him. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. Like, this is good. And we're holding fast to the promise that God has come. And people ask, do you really believe in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, again, our faith is not a blind faith. Is it an evidential faith? Getting attacked by Japanese beetles up here. Something was coming at me. Sorry, ADD. We have an evidential faith that we can look. We have clear evidence that, yes, Jesus is who he says he is, and he has done what he says he has done. And so we are holding fast. And in those promises in our life, sometimes we can ask this question. I'm sure Simeon and Anna ask the same thing. Well, how, how long do I have to hold on to this? How long, how long is this going to be? When is God finally going to come through on this? Let me say, encourage you, change your focus. Don't focus on how long you have to hold on to a promise. Hold fast. Focus on holding on to the one who is promised. Because let's say, how long do I have to hold on to this promise? If God promised it, hold on to him. That he is who he says he is. Like, he's batting a thousand at keeping his promises. He hasn't missed a one yet. And there's a couple of worship songs that sometimes they use that, God, you haven't failed me yet. And, and some of us deep theologians want to get in, up in arms about that. Like, yet almost implies like there could be a possibility of him maybe not fulfilling a promise. No, no, no. You have not failed me, period. Never have, never will. The times that we feel like that he has, just let me encourage you with this, it's because we've stepped out of line with the promises of God. We've missed it. But if we realign our lives under the promises of God, he will not, cannot fail you. And so don't hold fast to how long. Hold fast to the one who is promised. He is our comfort of redemption. That's where our hope comes from. So we're going to end this morning. The band's going to come back up here and sing a Christmas song. Not Jingle Bells not Frosty the Snowman. And there's always a big, you know, fight in churches, like what Christmas songs are we going to play? Can I just say, like, every worship song is a Christmas song. Every song that we sing proclaiming Jesus is a Christmas song. Because what we need to hold fast to is Christ. That's where our hope comes from. And we must never forget the promise maker, because he's the one that made those promises. Those prophecies, over 300, just about the life and the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, he made those. He was the promise maker. Unlike me and you, that we can make promises that we never fulfill. Jesus is the promise maker. God is the promise maker, but he is also the promise keeper. So hold fast to the promises. This is what the story of Christmas is all about, that God fulfills his promises to me, that if his word says it, if he has declared it, if he has made that promise, he's going to keep that. If, if you want to encourage one another, hey, what's God asking you to do? Yeah, it, share that, but it might be different, and that's okay, because no 
snowflake is the same, no fingerprints the same, and no relationship with the Lord is exactly the same. That how he moves and works, and, and when I think of Jesus and how he's my Lord and Savior, the, the attributes and the characteristics of him that resonate well with me, it might not be the same to you. And that's okay. That's okay. But so many of us are at risk of an immature faith because we don't want to forsake the very thing that Jesus is telling us to walk away from. Not as a test of maturity to one another, but a test of trust and obedience to Jesus. And it's hard. It's hard to argue with the guy that gave all to say, you know what, I'm not willing to do the same thing as you, Jesus. That's a hard argument to have. Jesus, don't you know what I have to give up if you're asking me to do this? Do you know how this is going to affect my life? That's really not a good argument with the guy that hung on the cross. Not a good argument to have. I don't know about you, but this sinner has it all the time. He's calling you right now. You better answer that. <laughs> yeah. Send Jesus to voice message. See how that works out. So many of us are at risk of an immature faith because we will not forsake what Jesus calls us to give up. Our depth of faith only comes from dependence on Jesus. Our depth of faith, our maturity, that completeness only comes with our dependence on Jesus. And so this rich young man walks away. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He has a little conversation talking about, all right, let's talk about this. this let's talk about rich men entering the kingdom. And in verse, what is it, 25, they're greatly astonished when they hear these things that with difficulty, and it's easier for this camel to go through the eye of a needle. And there's all kinds of interpretive things of what this could mean. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, some believe that the eye of the needle was the, like in a gate. They would have, they could open up the full gate when, you know, uh, it was open. But when closing time was there and they would shut that gate, they would still open a little bit that you could still get a, a camel through, but you'd have to take off all the possessions off of the camel so they could squeeze through. That's one interpretive way to see that. Another one is in Greek and Aramaic, the word for camel and rope are actually the same consonants. Uh, the vowels are just slightly different. And so some would say, oh no, that's a transcription error. It really meant a, a thick knotted rope. It's easier, you know, for uh, a thick knotted rope to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom. Pick whichever one you like. I want to look at the principle here. And so when he's saying, these two verses, it's difficulty for a rich man to enter the kingdom and this easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're greatly astonished and they're saying, well, then who can be saved then? We're kind of asking ourselves the same question then. What are you trying to say here, pastor? You open with those first statistics and then you read something like that. What are we trying to say? And they're greatly astonished because even in that culture then, and it definitely is influencing our culture now, inside the church is that mentality that if you have much, that was a sign of God's blessing on your life. And if you have little, oh, ye of little faith. It's almost like an early prosperity gospel type mentality. 
And sometimes that's hard and it does infiltrate us. When, when something happened that's good, maybe you get a raise, you get a promotion, it's like, oh, God is just blessing me. Does that mean if you didn't get it, you don't have the blessing of God then? That if somebody doesn't have a high paying kind of job that they don't walk in the blessings of the Lord? If you can't tell my tone and my approach to the prosperity gospel, not a big fan. And I think of Job. And uh, Job 1.21 says that the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That if he wants to give into your life, or if he wants to take away in your life, he's the one that blesses. And sometimes the greatest blessings that we have are not in what God gives. Some of our greatest blessings are in what God takes away from us. And that's a bold prayer. And when you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever is keeping me from a deeper relationship with you, take that from me. Take that from my hands. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And so they're greatly astonished, thinking who can be saved? And on our own, it's impossible. This rich man can't buy enough, can't do enough, can't nothing. It's impossible on his own, but it's not possible with God. And I don't think it means just because you have a, a, a fat account in a bank somewhere that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven because then we have to answer for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all rich men, David, rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, rich man, Barnabas, rich man, Matthew, we're studying, I don't know if you, Matthew, rich man. Are they not in the kingdom? Or is there something deeper here what's going on? Eternity is not determined by our economic status, but our faith in Jesus. So whatever Jesus has given you in your life has, has more to do with what are you gonna do to honor him with that. For some reason, that's what he trusted you with. I know I will never be a rich man. One, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I, my wife barely trusts me with $5. I haven't seen a 20 in years. She don't trust me. The Lord trusts me more than she trusts me, right? Because she knows what I'll just spend it on. McRib, no. <laughs> Somebody emailed me, what's the fascination with the McRib? I don't even know. But for some reason, God has trusted us with this. And I know what God cannot trust me with. Because if I was gonna be blessed financially, I would probably be on a highway to hell real fast, real quick, and I would do nothing. You know, you say that to act spiritual. Oh, if I won the lottery, I would do so much kingdom impact. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I don't trust myself with it, and I know the Lord doesn't trust me with it. And so Jesus, at the very end, he addresses his disciples specifically, and then he turns to everyone generally. And he's showing that in kingdom living, in kingdom living, to receive is to leave everything that we put our hope in above Jesus. That if you really want to receive, because Peter's asking that question, what about us? We've left everything. What are we going to have? Me is what Jesus says. You have me. What greater thing could there be? And so if we want to receive, even in this life, this kingdom living, what does that mean? To leave it all. Does that mean go and sell everything? Some of you might be. Does that mean completely changing jobs? Some of you, that might be. Or you might be like Zacchaeus, go right back into your job. 
but your identity is not in your position, your hope, the power that you have. All of those things are just a platform to make a kingdom impact. So the question isn't, how much do I have to give up to be a follower of Jesus? It's kind of the same question when we ask, like, how close to sin can I get without falling off? You know, wrong question. But what am I willing to keep that risks sabotaging my relationship with Jesus? Look at your life. Look at the things that you have. Let it be possessions. Let it be position. Let it be everything that encompasses your life. What am I willing to keep that is at risk of sabotaging my life with Jesus? That's what you need to give up. That's a bold prayer. And I believe we have a bold God that'll answer that bold prayer. It's gonna look different for all of us. And it's not a New Year's resolution, but a commitment to the Lord to say, I want to walk as close as I can with you. And whatever would cause a hindrance in that, take it from me. And I'm gonna walk away. Are you willing to surrender and submit your life to that kind of walk with Jesus? Father, we love you. We trust you. Even when we don't wanna trust you, Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith, knowing that whatever you lead and guide, whatever you call from our life to walk away from, to give up, to let go of, let your will be done in our life, knowing that it is better than anything that we could do of our own. So identify in every one of our hearts and our minds what that is. And call us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, draw us to you, call us into a deeper walk with you. Knowing that if we're in your will, walking with you, hand in hand, that is the blessings that we are looking for in our life. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. And continue to lead us individually, lead us and guide us as a church that we would make an impact in this kingdom for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...